the 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kvec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911. It is 4.07 on the Central Coast on this Thursday, April 7th, 2022. I'm Dave Congleton. Uh, buckle up. Uh, still to come on this broadcast, Bruce Gibson is going to be here. He's running for re-election. He's our first candidate. I think we have a lot to talk about with the supervisor. And then uh, Kathy Devaney from Athletica US joins us at 6.05 to talk about the debate over transgender athletes. It is the Dave Congleton Show, always your hometown radio talk show. This hour, always good to be in conversation with our good friend, historian, and all-around interesting guy, Mike Burrell. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Dave. How are you, sir? Thanks for having me in. Thanks yeah. for coming in. Now, we got a whole bunch of stuff to talk about, but you are a historian, and I would just like to take a second here and acknowledge the importance of this Thursday, April 7th, 2022, because as people know, we just heard it on the news, we now have a new Supreme Court Justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, became the first African-American woman. Confirmed by the U.S. Senate today on a vote of 53 to 47. I love it. Now, see, uh, okay, now I'm going to be directly honest with you. Sure. I've been so busy today that I haven't heard that news. So that is great news. Right. I was going to talk to you about the fact that it seems like a no-brainer that she would get confirmed. But she handled things oh. with so, so much so well, much aplomb. It was we'll, so good. We'll, we'll take great. your phone calls later, but not on Mike's personal line there. So just, it's his first time on the radio. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it feels like the first time. Yeah. Yes. With the COVID stuff and everything, that's for sure. Yeah. No. So that's the best news I could have gotten today is to hear that, because I don't I don't know you could find a person more qualified than this lady. Excellent credentials. I think she'll do fine. And I mean, when she uh, had some tough questions asked by certain members of the Senate, she handled it with grace. She thought about her answers before she said anything. And she said things that could apply to anybody as far as um, it didn't matter what color you were. It didn't matter what um, what your language was. It didn't matter anything. It was just she just handled things with grace. And so I'm so pleased. Dave, you made my day. All right. Well, you made my day by coming in. And one last question before we move on. Does it these first do they really matter? Sandra Day O'Connor, first woman, Gatanji, uh, first uh, black woman on the Supreme Court, uh, Abe Fortas, first Jewish chief justice or whatever he was. Absolutely. I mean, when you think when you think of this, how long has it been? I mean, to, to have to have not only another woman on the court, but to have a black woman, that's huge. I mean, and and regardless of what the split is, as far as the votes go on the court, um, having a person who is of color or a person who's been through it besides and with a different skin color, it's going to add some dimension to the court that hasn't been there. So, I mean, we've had it there with uh, males who are, who are of color, but we haven't had anything like this with a, for, for a female. And I, it's, it's groundbreaking. It's historic. Uh, we're lucky to be alive to experience it. And 30 years from now, they'll be talking about this when she finally steps down from the Supreme Court. Absolutely. Remember the day she was appointed? Yes. And there she goes. Absolutely. All right. So, Mike, you want to talk about a trip you took to Poland 
And I'm always on board for whatever topic you want to pursue. But why are we about to pursue this? What made you want to talk about this today? Well, well, first of all, Poland's been in the news. I mean, Poland has been a, a place that has been a refuge for all the people who are suffering under the Ukrainian war. In, in the Ukrainian war, they've opened their borders. And uh, the thing is, they're taking people, plus they're, they're doing things like um, supplying arms and ammunition, funneling them through, and as other countries are. And uh, so Poland has kind of been centerfold on all this. And, of course, Poland went through hell during World War II from both directions. They got it from the Germans, and they got it from the Russians. And um, they hated them both, eventually. I mean, yeah. it was one of those things that uh, uh, undying enmity, and I learned that when I talked to people when I was there. Um, so I thought, well, shoot, Dave, this is short notice coming in and talking, which is great. And I, what a better thing than to talk about the time I went there before the wall came down. And I was it, I was there in 1985, and the wall didn't come down till 1989. So and it remains with you. Yes. Oh man, I tell you. And and the part I, I mean, I was I was really going there to to investigate the Holocaust because I I made friends with a Holocaust survivor who you've had on this show, a name a guy named Thomas Blot. And I read a couple of books, and I swore that when I got to be a teacher, I was going to teach about this stuff. People had to know about this. So, um, so the Vocal Arts Ensemble took a trip in 1985 to go to Europe, and we competed in Klanglothlin, which is in Wales, and we traveled over Western Europe. And when it was over, and this kind of caused a rift in our marriage a little bit, I took off for Poland for, for some weeks, Took a train, went to Frankfurt, Germany, and from, from there I took a 24-hour train into Warsaw. And um, I was supposed to meet Thomas Blot, who was the survivor, and he was going to take me around and show me places where he had been, like Sobibor, which was a death camp in Poland. And that's different from a concentration camp. It was a place where people just died. And um, he was going to meet me and take me there, and we were going to stay with people in Warsaw who were friends of his, and they spoke English. Well... I took it upon myself when we got to England with the Vocal Arts Ensemble to write letters to the people, and they were the Detko family and the Chepkinski family, telling them I was coming and what my train number was going to be and when I would be arriving, and that uh, I really hoped to meet them. Now, if you have any questions, I'm going to let you talk for a minute, and then then I'm going to go on with that story, because that's a hairy story. Well, no, I'm just, I'm just, this is all triggered by your interest in the Holocaust. Yes, and well. And so you're going over for this concert and you figure, well, as long as I'm in the neighborhood, this is what I want to go really do. Right. Well, there were two books that really influenced me about this. And the first book was a book that I read when I was 11. This was in 1958. And it was a book by Eugene Kogan, who was a, who was a, a, a person who survived and, and had his book translated in 1950 to English, and it made it to the stands on the newsstands in 1958. And being a guy who was raised to respect adults by my parents, I mean, we were, we were trained to respect adults. I saw this thing on a newsstand, and I looked at it, and I had my allowance, and the book only cost 75 cents, so I bought the book because hmm. I couldn't believe the pictures in there. It was showing people on barbed wire fences who'd been electrocuted, and, and I said, these are adults. What is going on where people would do this to other people? So I read the book and talked to my parents about it because they're both veterans, and they said, yeah, that's all happened. That's all true. It's, a lot of it hasn't come to light yet because this was still 1958, and not a lot of stuff had been published about just how bad all this was. But um, so from that time on, I was fascinated with the way human beings could treat other human beings so badly. I could not and still don't understand it. 
So then the second book was when Thomas Blatt, um, a book came out called Escape from Sobibor, which was this death camp in eastern Poland. Right. And a guy named Richard Rashke wrote a book about the escape from Sobibor, where 400 people tried to escape from the, uh, the death camp. They attacked the guards, and they made a movie about this. There was a movie called... Alan Arkin. Yeah, Alan Arkin. Mm. Absolutely. And, um, and Toivy was a young kid. He was 15, and that's Thomas Blatt, who's this survivor. And uh, they broke out of the camp, and they had to go through minefields. They had to cross barbed wire fences. When the guards finally got it together and started shooting at them and s- setting off mortar rounds and stuff to try to kill the people as they were running away, the 400 made it out, but only 200 of them survived. The rest were killed either by anti-Semites that were in that area. Polish people were, a lot of Polish people were anti-Semitic. There was a reason Poland was picked for, 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 Hitler picked it for this kind of stuff. He had no thought about the Poles either. They would be next in line right after the Jewish people. But anyway, um, Blot survived. He even survived getting shot in the jaw. And when I visited him in Santa Barbara, he took my finger and reached up underneath his jawbone. And he said, feel that lump? And I said, well, yeah, I do feel that love. He said, that's the bullet. He said, I lived with an open wound fighting on the side of the Russians against the, Ger- the Nazis until I could get to Israel. And then I had that job repaired, but they never took out the bullet. The bullet's still there. Yes. I mean, this guy had nine lives. Um, Mike Burrell on this broadcast. We're talking about his journey to Poland as a younger man and why it stays with him today. We'll pick up that conversation as we continue right here on AM 920. FM 96.5 News Talk, KVEC. As uh, we chat with the Mike Burrell, I would uh, be remiss and uh, I'd probably be in the doghouse with Kathy Mink from the diversity uh, diversity of San Luis, diversity coalition of San Luis Obispo County. A, if I forgot the name, but, but B, if I didn't remind you that tonight at 6 o'clock in the banquet room of the Seacrest in Pismo Beach, free, open to the public, they have uh, a survivor. Uh, I, I don't, it, it, are you a Holocaust survivor if you weren't in a concentration camp? Oh, I, I, yes. Uh, I mean, well, just th- this, a- this woman her, and she and her mother hit a Jewish girl uh, during uh, World War II in Amsterdam. And she is speaking tonight, six o'clock at the Seacrest Hotel in Pismo Beach. Wow. Okay. Well, that be that would be quite an experience there we go. to hear somebody talk like talk about that. There aren't many left, are there? No, no, right. it, it isn't. And so, uh, I, so as we continue with Mike about his story, I just want to stress: this is 1985. The Berlin Wall is still up. There's still a West Germany and an East Germany. Yes. Yes. And a absolutely. Soviet Union. Yes. And so um, we did the tour. But in the mean, before that, I guess I should say I made friends with Tom and visited him, and he showed me stuff that I couldn't even believe. He showed me soap that had been made from human beings. He showed me barbed wire from some of the fences. He showed me he was involved in the uh, Western version of what is now the Holocaust National Holocaust Museum, which used to be called the Martyrs Memorial that's on Wilshire Boulevard in Los Angeles. And he, he built a model of that camp, and he and some other survivors financed that place. And he went back to Sobibor all the time to make sure that place was not graded over and was kept as a monument. So he went to Poland back and forth. So I talked to him, and I know one time, and I'll tell you this very briefly, he came to Cal Poly and stayed at my house. And uh, he was going to go up and talk to students at Cal Poly about his experiences. There were four students who were reading from books 
that showed the deportations from France of Jewish people to the concentration camps. They had four students reading 24 hours a day, each one reading a name every two or three seconds. They asked him if he had any names that he wanted read. He sat down with a piece of paper and wrote out 17 members of his family, all who were killed in Sobibor, where he eventually ended up himself. And I could not believe it. Um, so, so he was going to go to Poland. He says, meet me there. If you're going to be there, I'll be there when you're there with, wow. after your trip. So I got, got on the train. I got to tell you, before you could go, you had to change money over through the Polish government. And now it's probably different because the wall's down. But I had to change over $182 to Zelotis. No, no, excuse me, $150. But the change, exchange rate was 182 Zelotis to $1. Well, I found out later when you got on the streets in Poland that on the, as soon as they figured out I was an American, and all I had to do was open my mouth and they knew I was an American, <laughs> uh, they would give me 500 to 1. But I took 100 and I, I changed over only $150. So when I left, left Poland, I had to have $150 or less. So they would say, what have you been doing? Have you been changing money on the black market? Yeah. So I was giving away money at the, at the end because I did change some on the black market. So I had more spending money. But in Poland, you couldn't buy much in those years. You, your, your money wasn't, I mean, American dollars, Deutschmarks, uh, pounds, any of that was worth way more than Polish Zelotis. Yeah. So here I am, we, I get on the train, and you had to buy a ticket, not only to get on the train in Frankfurt, you had to buy a seat to sit in on the train. Really? Yeah, and it's a 24-hour train, so you want a place where you can lie down and maybe take a nap. Yeah. So I had two tickets, I mean, I learned all this, and uh, I got on the train and went. And as soon as we got going, as soon as we got to the East German border, it was dark, and uh, they search all your belongings. And I only took my camera and some film and, and some money. I did smuggle in American dollars, though, which if they'd have caught me, I could have been in trouble. But I wanted some money so that I could change it right, ac- right across on the black market. So we get on the train and we go. We go through Dresden. Dresden was firebombed during World War II. That's right. The Russians did not want it left fixed up. They wanted it left the way it was as a warning to the Germans to never mess with the Russians again. So when I went through there, all the buildings were black. The clock towers had been fixed, so the clocks worked But on the, in the, in the bell, bell towers and stuff for, for the buildings. But everything was black. Now I think Dresden's been restored quite a bit, and it's a beautiful city. It always was a beautiful city until it was firebombed. So then we're going on the train, and we go through, and I have my camera. And I'm the only person on this train that speaks English. There is nobody else. I was sharing a, a par- compartment with a German guy, yeah. and I got a D in German when I was in school. <laughs> so here I am, trying to think of my three or four words I could say in German, and he's trying to talk to me in his three or four words of English, and we're trying to communicate. And we shared sausage and tomatoes and all that kind of stuff. And I'm looking out the window. And as soon as we got into a train station, I'm taking pictures of the buildings. And pretty soon the conductor comes around, he waves his finger at me, he says, no, no, no. He's saying, no, no. So then the German guy kind of says, military secret. This is a military secret. You can't be taking pictures of train stations. And I go, you've got to be kidding me. I said, these things are, these buildings are falling down, most of them. He says, nope, you can't take pictures. So from then on, I started looking and could see the little red sign that's a camera with a slash through it. Wow. And I go, ooh, okay, maybe I don't want to do this. Why you know? did they not want the photos taken? Well, because, see, a, a train station is a military place where you stage troops and where you, oh. you get stuff off. So it's all considered important 
transportation information. So here we are, we're going through, and we came around a corner, and I mean it looked like Dante's Inferno. They were processing coal, and they were t- changing coal into coal oil, and it looked like a petroleum um, refinery. Pipes, the joints were loose, everything was on fire. They had these big wheels which were transporting um, the, the um, diggings from coal mines that were being transported to these ponds and pools. It looked like hell, and I didn't have my camera out for that, so I missed that picture. But I couldn't believe it. They were At that time, in 1985, they were still using steam trains. Now, we were on diesel trains, because this was a long ride coming from Frankfurt to Warsaw. Sure, sure. But locally, they were still using uh, steam engines. Um, so we saw all these fields. Actually, we saw the fields looked very good. Everything was kind of uh, cloudy in Poland. Um, the fields were green and beautiful, a lot of cabbages, a lot of stuff like that. And when I got to Pol- got to Warsaw, the family Detko was waiting for me. And they said, Thomas Blot never called us and said he wasn't coming. Because I'd called him in England and said, are you coming? Am I going to meet you in Warsaw? And he goes, nope, I'm not coming. But I've called the Detko family. They know you're coming. Well, he didn't do that. So the letter that I wrote when we landed in England, and I mailed it. As soon as we got to England, I mailed this letter to these families introducing myself and telling me that I, or telling them what my train was and when I was going to get there. Would they please, I mean, I'm very yeah. glad to be staying with them. Right. They were holding the letter up when I came in, and they had a sign, Mike. And I got off the, got off the thing because they spoke English. He yeah, worked for the yeah. Polish broadcasting system. Really? So here I go. I get off the train, and he said, We have one said, minute. He said, We got this letter today. If I had been a day later or a day earlier, they wouldn't have been there. Because the letter hadn't reached them and Tom had not called them. I would have had to go to the Polish Tourist Bureau and be put up in a hotel at Western rates. I would have been out of money in two days because they would have charged me what the big city hotels would charge in the rest of Europe. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a huge bullet that I dodged just by pure accident. And how much time had passed, Mike, between mailing the letter and arriving in two Warsaw? Weeks. Two weeks. Two weeks. I mean, I thought the letter would have been there quicker than that, but I was so thankful. And I mean, they hauled it up. They said, we got this today. And they took me into their house. Uh, they shared their meat rations with me. They made me at home. Their son, who was 26 years old, was still living at home. He had to wait 10 years. He was on a list to get an apartment. He was an architect. And that, that man, I'm still in touch with him. In fact, I talked to him about, well, on email, I talked to him about what's going on in Ukraine. And he said, oh, yeah. He says, we're all worried about that. All right. Uh, we have Mike Morell on this broadcast sharing with us adventures as a young man going to uh, Poland. And we'll pick up the story as we continue to draw some parallels as well. All that straight ahead. You're listening to Hometown Radio for the Central Coast. It is the Dave Congleton Show. Happy Thursday. Craig, thank you. This is the Thursday edition of Hometown Radio. That means tomorrow's Friday. Hey, Dave, good job. Uh, we've got King Harris saluting Roy Orbison. Jack Green, our military historian, joins us as well. And we're going to enjoy the old-fashioned apple pie from Lynn's. 
County Supervisor Bruce Gibson is on his way. He'd like to keep his job. What do you think? We'll find out. Also, Kathy Devaney at 605 talking about transgender athletes. We are back with Mike Burrell, historian extraordinaire, talking about a trip he took to Poland in 1985. Poland is back in the news. Michael has been there, but it was another time, another era. But the memories have clearly stayed with him. And obviously, there's so much that I want to ask you about, Michael, but I'm just curious. 1985, you're in Poland. It's under Soviet influence. It's behind the wall. The, the stereotype is that it's a cold, dark place. And that kind of is it. I mean, uh, the, the, when the one thing that is good about some of this planning that was done under Soviet authority was they built a lot of high-rise apartments, really big ones. And you see some of that just in the pictures that are coming back from Ukraine. Um, so that means there's a lot of areas that are parks because people live in these high-rises, and then there's green stuff all around. But the high-rises were slammed together. We, when I was there the last four days, we had no hot water. I mean, it just... And, and they were living in good apartments. I mean, these the people that I was with uh, worked for the Polish Broadcasting Company, so they could speak English. They had a good salary. They had a good place to live in. But they were without water, hot water for four days. So, I mean, uh, there yeah. were a lot of weird things. And um, and I got to say that um, I met some people called the Kapczynski family who were friends of the Detkos, and I went over to their house for dinner, and they invited me over for dinner at their house. They saved their meat rations to be able to feed me sausage so that they could give me sausage when I came over for dinner. Why were they under rationing in 1985? Just because stuff wasn't available. Okay. You, you couldn't buy it. Now, if you had money like pounds or dollars, you could go into what was known as a Western store, and these were little stores that the common person couldn't go in because you didn't have that kind of money. If you had Zelotis, you had to go to the regular stores. But these Western stores that were set up to take Russian, I mean, uh, regular currency from other nations at that time, of course, now it's all euros, but in those days, there were pounds, there were dollars, there's, um, you know, all the different currencies from Great Britain, pounds, you know, the whole thing. Um, you could go in and get anything you wanted to. You get stereos, you could get expensive food, you could get all these things, but you had to pay in different currency. So these were all things that were driven home to me that we didn't experience. And I will say that um, we visited the site of um, Treblinka, which was the death camp that was set up to kill the Jews of Warsaw. And so we needed gas. And uh, the man, um, uh, Derek uh, Kepchinski, was going to drive me out in his little car. So we went to the gas station. And he said, the only way we can buy gas now, because it's after hours, he says, we're buying it on the black market. And I said, well, what does that mean? He says, do you have American dollars? I said, yes. Okay, he says, it's going to cost you $15. And he's going to open up the same pump that people during the regular hours would use with their ration cards to get gasoline for their cars. So as soon as I showed the American money, he turned on the pumps, and boom, the car was filled up, and we drove to Treblinka. Now, Treblinka was a death camp. It's been cleaned up, but you can still kind of see where things are. So, what do you mean cleaned up? Cleaned, cleaned up. up well, like, um, like any bones that were lying around, any okay. ashes that were around have been cleaned up, and they've got monuments, and they've got all these different sized right. stones, and, and the biggest stone, but of course. But the facilities are still there. The, yeah, you can okay. drive in to see where the train tracks were. You can drive in to see all that stuff. But the crematory were destroyed. The barracks were all gone. All that stuff was done. Um, but on the way uh, in. But how does that make you feel? Let me stop you there. Oh. Going to it a, a just, camp. It, of course, um, for me, it's emotional. Sure. So for me... I'm kind of walking around trying to keep it together. 
walking around a place like this. And it was worse in some of the other places. Treblinka's been fixed up, so you don't see this too much. But even at Treblinka, you could see where the trains came in, where they got off, and music was played, and they could, people were thinking they were going to uh, a work camp. And there were work camps there, too. But, and, and they were being gassed. They weren't going to any work camp. So we walked around there and, and saw it, and it was beautiful. But I want to say about what I saw on the way in. The roads were two-lane roads, and you look at the telephone poles, and, they, and the same telephone poles that were there during the war, they still use a lot of those that are still in the countryside. And you see cranes. You know, we talk about the cranes that carry the, the newborn baby in a blanket and fly away and bring the baby to your house. We saw real cranes, and they said they're a problem in Poland because they like to build their nests on top of on top of um, um, fireplace things. And so they stopped the, the smoke from coming out of a house. Let me ask you, how did the Polish people deal with their history and their involvement in World War II? That's a good question. And I'd say that uh, the people I was with, they understand and they deal with it. They hate to think they have to think about it all the time because people from the West always are asking about Auschwitz and they're always asking about Treblinka and they're always asking. And they say there's more to our country than this. There's more to our country, and I agree. There is way more. It's an amazing place, and now it's probably even better. Um, but anyway, we uh, so another thing I saw, we see people, this was a Sunday when we were driving out there, and people were going to church. They were in a wagon. They were driving a wagon pulled by two horses with rubber wheels. And that's when we had to go around. We had to pass, you know, like we pass cars when they're going slow. The cars go around wagons. People are in there. And then I saw guys who uh, who were... The men were out in the field working with scythes, you know, like the Grim Reaper. They're out there with a, a scythe, not a sickle, not a little one. This is the big kind. The big one. Yeah. Mm. And they're whacking the grain, and the younger kids and the, and the ladies or the women are following up and stacking it up in big bales. So, I mean, this was 1985, and this is what I was seeing, steam trains. So it was like going back into the 19th century, what we were looking at. So that was one trip. And then another trip uh, we took to Lublin, and it was, uh, it was a train. We had to take a local train, so it was like from here to Santa Barbara. It would be that distance. The train wasn't fast because it stopped at every dunghill to pick up people and let people off. <laughs> and, well, yeah, uh, they didn't have cars. They probably depended on mass transit. Right. Sure. Oh, everybody rode the trains. We saw a whole funeral cortege get on the same train and go just 20 miles to get to another town. And they were all dressed up in their finest. Hmm. And the train was packed, so Pavel and I were rather young compared to a lot of the people on the train, so we stood up the whole way. We stood up for 125 miles. But anyway, this family was sitting there, and it was a man who probably was in his 40s, a lady who might have been about the same, and two little kids. And they had one seat for four people on this train. And I snapped a picture so I didn't look like I was taking a picture, and I have it in my slides that I showed to my, to my students when I was teaching. They were so patient, they were dressed to the nines. They would switch, and mostly they let the kids sit while the adults stood, but they would rotate on this one seat and never a complaint. No complaints. They were the most beautiful family that I think I have ever seen. And uh, it was just amazing to see this. And so then we get to Lublin, where we were headed, because there was a camp there that was a, a, a concentration camp called Majdanek. And we got out, and that place had not been cleaned up. We walked through there, and the crematory was still there. Um, they had ashes piled up in this big thing that looked like a, it was huge. It looked like a small gymnasium where they piled all the ash in the form of an urn that would, was used in Jewish ceremonies. So it had a round top and a round bottom with the ashes in the middle. And we uh, saw a, a trench where 23,000 
um, Russian soldiers were machine gunned by the Nazis in this trench. 23,000. 23,000. 23,000. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, so That's we the size through, of Aurora Grande. Yes. I mean, you can't just toss that out, Mike. Right. Well, they we got to stop, stop there. 23,000. 23,000 prisoners of war. They were shot. The Germans, the Nazis just killed them because the, 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 the Russians were considered just as despicable as Poles or just as despicable as the Jews, especially if they were captives. They, they just didn't care. They didn't take prisoners. No, not take prisoners. And so we walked through the crematory and you could still see ashes and some bones in the crematory. And it, this was not, it was big, but it wasn't nearly as big as Auschwitz was. But we went through there and then we went through the museum that was there. And I have no patience with People who are deniers. You show me a denier and I'll be in his face. Because we saw rows on shelves of cans of Zyklon B gas where Zyklon B crystals had been inside that were dumped into these thing chutes that had holes. And the gas came out. And there were hundreds of these cans up there. These were just the ones left in the camp when the camp was liberated. We saw a room full of suitcases. And we saw all of this at Auschwitz too. Uh, human hair, like a whole room full of it. Uh, we saw um, uh, half of a room of kids' hair. It was all been shaved off. So when you see this stuff, there is no way you can be a denier in my presence and not get nose to nose with these kind of people. Deniers, they just have no clue as far as what all this stuff was. I can't even imagine the emotions you were feeling. Oh, beyond, I can't even it's, imagine. It's beyond it. So on the way back, and this is, this is something that we in the West might know about, we rode the local train back. Only this time we had communist youth who were from Warsaw. And these were people who had, were down and out, young people. And so the Communist Party in Poland would give these people a chance to come down and have a day off and if they would join the party. Because you get privileges if you join the Communist Party. And these were, ki- these were people who were not educated. These were people who were kind of uh, poor they didn't really have any um, focus as far as their career or anything like that. And they were hooligans. I mean, they were raising hell on these three cars at the end of the train. They had to stop the train two or three times to stop the people fighting in the cars. And as I was telling Dave earlier in a break, that I watched a guy, and, and, and I have to say that a lot of Europeans, and this includes the, all the Poles too, smoke the worst cigarettes in the world. God, they <laughs> smoke. And I mean to tell you, it is terrible. Yeah. They are bad. So here we are. We're trying to hang our heads out the window because we were standing up again, trying to get air because of all the smoke. And this guy holds his arm out, and this other guy comes up, and we watch him inject something into his veins. And the way Pavel told me, he didn't know the right words in English to say it, but he said it was some sort of a derivative of heroin of some sort or opium. And uh, this guy sat in the corner and kind of curled up in a ball, and he cruised. He probably had the best trip of all of us because he, he was <laughs> non-compass mentis. He, just was, he was just out to lunch. It took us, we left at like 4, 5 o'clock. We didn't get home till midnight, and I had to get up and get on a train to go to, go to, to uh, Krakow after that. Yeah. But, I mean, when we saw that, and he said to me again, he said, well, don't you know? It's just like employment in Poland. There's no unemployment. And I said, what do you mean there's no unemployment? He says, we all work. Don't you know that? According to what the information that's put out. He goes, but we only work three hours a day. So we don't make any money. We don't have enough to live on. I'm still waiting for an apartment. And he said, we don't have a drug problem in Poland. Just look. Right now, that guy, that wasn't, that wasn't drugs. It was just injected into him. It was something else. It had to be medicine. 
Mike Burrell talking about his trip to Poland as a younger man back when there was a Berlin Wall, back when the Soviet Union was in power. And, and just for people tuning in, what was the purpose of this trip, and did you accomplish the goal? Well, my, my purpose was, was to see for myself, because yeah. I'd read about all this stuff. Yeah. And, I, and I, my teaching's more effective if I can say, obviously, and, and actually and, and, to and, learn and, about and, Poland. And, I mean, yeah, and have, so having been there, did you accomplish your goal? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, uh, right. yeah. Let's take a final break. We'll come back with more of our conversation with Mike Perrell. We're live. We're local. You're listening to The Dave Congleton Show. We have a special segment coming up uh, next week. Uh, local history uh, teacher uh, Bruce Bedrigian is going to be bringing in some of his students, including a Hungarian exchange student. And they have been uh, researching the Ukrainian situation. And we're going to hear some uh, local students' perspective on this. They'll be Tuesday at 6.05. Bruce Gibson joins us during the 5 o'clock hour. We're in our final segment with Mike Burrell, talking about a trip he made to Poland to see history firsthand. Back under the auspices of the Soviet Union, behind the Berlin Wall. Sounds like an amazing adventure you had there, Mike. But as we go to the final segment, obviously people are wondering, all right, so... Are there parallels to today? Oh, absolutely. What would you um, point to? Well, the thing is, is um, people say uh, people who don't learn from history, and I'm not, Santayana said it, I mean, it's been said so many times that I'm not even sure where the original saying goes, but those people who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And, um, and so people say that. But the thing is, and this is what I tried to impress upon my students, and I impressed, I mean, we did a short uh, six-week course at the continuation school on genocide. And we studied all the genocides. I mean, there are genocides going on right now. There have been genocides going on since World War II on. There have been genocides. And, I mean, you've got the Armenian genocide that took place right around World War I with the Armenians. You've got uh, uh, the purges that went in the Soviet Union against the Kulaks and against the Cossacks and against all these people that were uh, in the Soviet Union that were against Stalin. You've had, uh, you've had genocide, of course, the Nazi genocide. You had the Japanese wiping out Nanking. You had stuff like um, stuff going on in East Africa right now. You've got stuff going on, well, you had stuff going on in Cambodia with Pol Pot when he was ruling there. Um, and these are marginalized people. I mean, uh, uh, what was the movie that was a famous movie about Africa, uh, the hotel guy? Um, oh, yeah, Hotel Uganda. Yeah, Uganda. There was, that was genocide. Or, or Hotel Rwanda. Yeah. One of the two. Yeah, it was, it was, and I mean, it's been going on and because it's marginalized people and people, they don't, the press doesn't make a big deal out of it too much. They do, but it's all oh, same old, same old, and they're marginalized, so nobody cares that much. And uh, it's, we've had genocide, we had genocide going on in Bosnia. I mean, it's, it's been a constant thing. You can, you can make a list and it, it brings us right up to the present time. And what is going on in Ukraine? More of the same. It's the same. And um, and it's horrifying to me because I like to think the world's going in a better direction. But when you see something like what has happened in the Ukraine, you have to say, man, what is this human race about? Where do we get this? I mean, have you stayed in touch with any of the people from the Poland experience? Yes. I've contacted Pavel, who now has finally got his own place and is living in Gdansk, which is in the north part of Poland. And he replied to me. He says, yeah. He says, I have to be careful myself. I'm not going to get called up because we're worried that uh, that... 
Putin could come for after us. And um, and I talked to um, uh, the Kepchinsky family, um, Derek, the man who drove me out to Treblinka, divorced his wife, Eva, who still in, was still in France, and he moved back to Poland and remarried. He's up. He may be up for being uh, drafted into the Polish army. And he's he's probably my age. He's probably in his 60s. And uh, the son is now, he's not in there. He's, he's in Bali with his girlfriend, so he's out. But he's my son's age, so he's like 39. See, I'd be very concerned if I lived in Poland right now. Oh, the, the, yeah, it's, 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 it's bad. It's bad. If you're in Estonia, Lithuania, or Latvia, same thing. So, uh, so yeah, I've been in contact with those people, but it's been tragic with some of those families. Ava, Ava died with uh, choking on, a, of all things, a chicken bone. Last summer, and and she so so there's none of that family left in Fontainebleau in France, um, mm. and the Detko family had trouble. So let's uh, squeeze in a call. Alan's in San Luis on KVEC. Hi, Alan. Yeah, hi, Dave. Hi, hi. Mike. Hi. hi, hi, Alan. Well, you're doing what you need to do, and that's to bring the history out, and that to remind people. My family came out of Eastern Europe, but it was before World War One, so they faced the pogroms Oof. and then came to America. So things have been going on, obviously, for a very long time. But you're talking about marginalized, and I flashed on the line from a song which talked about Poland being used for a thoroughfare, people just marching through one way or another. And I can see where the Ukraine is like that as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well... Well, we saw a place when I was in Poland where um, the, the, the non-aggression pact that the Soviet Union and Germany, it was very cynical, um, signed at the beginning of the war, was over Poland. And the Russians came in from the east, and the Germans or the Nazis came in from the west, mm-hmm. and they divided Poland. Yep. Well, we went to a place where um, Polish soldiers, because the Polish soldiers tried to resist. They, they were not anything like the Ukrainians. They could not resist the Nazi war machine or, for that matter, the, the Soviet machine. But a whole bunch of Polish soldiers were killed. And it was blamed by the Russians that it was the Nazis that did it. When I got to Poland and saw the places where this was, they, the Poles looked at me and said, this was not the Germans that did this. This was the Russians. The Russians killed these guys. Because they, they knew they were going to take this territory over eventually, and they didn't want any soldiers left alive who could resist. And so they took all these Polish officers and guys who had been captured in battle, took them out and machine gunned them in the forest. The Katyn Forest Massacre is what that was. And there was stuff like that all over. The Poles had been trampled on, you know, for... Since World War One, I. I mean, World War One yeah. is when they, the, the country was kind of created. What else from you, Alan? Two things. One is that now what Russia is doing is saying it was the Nazis in the Ukraine, and they're using that as an excuse to do what they're doing. Yes. And the other is a song I'm going to recommend called "Over My Dead Body" by Steve Taylor. Okay, I'm going to write it down. And why are you recommending that, Alan? Because it talks about Poland as a thoroughfare. The first line is, uh, let's see, in December 1981, I took my final beating from the blunt end of a Russian gun. So it gives you some of the history. Would you say his name? Steve Taylor. Steve Steve Taylor, Taylor. yeah. Thank you. Another lefty. All right, Alan, thank you very much. Thank you. What was it like? How long were you there? I'm sorry. I was there. I was there about a good uh, two and a half weeks. Okay. So, what was it like to come back on the other side of the wall? 
Well, first of all, I had to get on a train and go from Warsaw to East Germany. Yeah. And when I got to East Germany, I got out. And yeah. then I had to find a checkpoint to go through because every, the wall, the, yeah. at that time, the Berlin Wall was up. And you had to go through Checkpoint Charlie or you had to get on the right train and get off at the right place. And I was carrying stuff. I, there's no way I could figure out where that was. Yeah, but, how finally, did it, but how did it feel? Oh, it, well... Once I got across to West Germany, I got out and kissed the ground. Right. I was so glad to be in West Germany. Um, and, I mean, uh, it was like night and day between the two. And, of course, now since the walls come down, I mean, I was, I was on the place where Kennedy gave a speech up there where, you know, I am a... I am a ich, ich ein Berliner. Yeah. Uh, you, I'm a Berliner. You, you weren't any good at German, were you? No. No, I'm, I'm, I won't even pretend. No. Um, and seeing this and seeing the, the Brandenburg Gate on the other side of the wall from where it was, you could see this grand boulevard that was there at one time, uh, and Tiergarten, Tiergartenstrasse, and, uh, and it was divided up by the wall. And, uh, of course, now that's all down, which I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. I never th- thought I'd see that wall come down. But it was a very big experience. I saw the place where uh, Count von Stauffenberg, who tried to kill Hitler, um, was part of that plot, where he was uh, imprisoned and then tortured and killed. I mean, that was in Berlin. There's still stuff like that to see. I saw the went to the Olympic Stadium where the where um, oh who's who's the who's the who's the fast runner that the black guy that won four gold medals Jesse Jesse, Jesse Owens. Owens. Jesse Owens, I saw his name on four events that are still on the wall in that stadium because the stadium was was damaged, but it wasn't destroyed in the war. Uh, Mike Burrell, absolutely mesmerizing hour. We cannot thank you enough for the conversation, but I can only give you about 50 seconds, 40 seconds for a final thought. Well, my final thought is that I'm very, it's, it's, it's really bad what's going on, but I am so pleased that Poland is in a position where they are saving people, where they're trying to trying to rise to the occasion to show resistance. And that all of us, all of us, we're seeing it happen in front of our eyes. We're seeing stuff that Europe has been through a long time ago. And if this isn't a warning, I mean, it makes me sad to think everybody's militarizing again. So, so for me, I think this is an important topic we never forget. And I'm glad, thanks to you, we won't forget it. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Dave. Off we go. We've got news and traffic and weather. We're only halfway through today's broadcast. Up next, let's uh, sit down with County Supervisor and Chair of the County Board of Supervisors, Bruce Gibson. He'd like to keep his job. What do you think? We'll find out. Up next on Hometown Radio. The 920 KBEC Podcast Network is presented by the Slow County Real Estate Podcast with House Swayze. Up-to-date information on the local real estate market on your time. New episodes weekly at the podcast link at 920kbec.com and wherever you get your podcasts. California DRE 01111911.